The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour from Food FM with me, David Kermode. It's the final episode of Series 6, so we are reflecting on the highlights. England's Irish winemaking star, Dermot Sugru, on what makes this island sparkle. Exton Park's Corinne Seeley on what made her want to make wine in England. Former Savoy head bartender Shannon Tebay on a journey from haute cuisine to cocktail queen. Chateau Galupe's sustainability pioneer Jessica Julmi on relaunching one of Provence's great estates. Petaluma's new winemaker, Teresa Heutzenroeder, uh, talks about getting to grips with that iconic brand. Olivier Ward, gin expert, self-confessed gin nerd, on Channel 4's uh, Sunday Brunch on how that spirit bounced back. And the Wine Society's Italy buyer, Sarah Knowles, MW, spells out what makes that country so special. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. I had been wanting to talk to Dermot Sugru for a long while, but pinning down the Irish star of English wine for an hour-long interview is no easy task. Head winemaker at Whiston Estate for a little bit longer, consultant for some other great English brands, and creator of his own brand, Sugru South Downs, he is a busy man, to say the least. So much so that he actually interrupted his honeymoon to speak to us here on The Drinking Hour. I kid you not. He has been described by Hugh Johnson, no less, as the best winemaker in England. So I wanted to know what made this country perfect, in his mind, for sparkling wine. Clearly our geology is, is, is very, very important. But I think, first of all, you know, climate is, 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 is massively, massively important. Um, uh, the climate is warming. Um, however, we are a cool climate viticultural region. You, it's always been considered a marginal climate for grape growing, but it's getting less and less marginal every year, you could say. Um, cool climate viticulture can promote beautiful, pristine, finely focused uh, fruit flavours in wines that is really difficult to achieve in warmer uh, uh, climates. Um, so this is particularly suitable for making delicate still white wines and rosés, you could say, but particularly uh, uh, suitable for making very high quality sparkling wines. And, and I'd say, you know, traditional method sparkling wine, the highest expression that you can get from that. So this long, cool growing season um, allows us to ripen grapes to a very, very high level. They may not be high in terms of maturity of sugar that you'll get in other climates, but physiologically ripe grapes, we can achieve these very, very often. There are challenges, uh, and the, the challenges really come in the, the respect of us being a maritime climate, so there's a lot of moisture, um, there's a lot of opportunity for fungal infections such as downy mildew, powdery mildew and inevitable botrytis to, 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 to grow. So you need to be very, very careful with that. But the quality of the grapes that we can grow in almost every year means we've got a fantastic chance of making really high quality wine and, and very often exceptional uh, uh, quality sparkling wine most years. But the, the challenges need to be dealt with though. On top of that, the mosaic of soils that we have in the south of England is particularly good 
chalk is the standout example that everybody talks about. Um, there are there are actually, ironically, there's not as many vineyards planted directly on chalk in the UK as 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 you would think from the way people talk about it. There's a lot more vineyards planted on different soil types, such as uh, sandy soils, green sand soils, um, clay soils. But chalk really is the is, is this tremendous natural asset that we have in the south of England for, for growing high-quality sparkling wines. And people talk about uh, you know, ripening being a challenge sometimes uh, in, a, in a dodgy summer in England, and we have plenty of dodgy summers uh, in, in terms of, you know, sunbathing and, and having al fresco suppers is concerned. But actually, it's much, by the, from what you're saying, it's much more nuanced than that. Uh, yeah, it is, because, you know, to, 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 to have a successful year in the vineyard, um, uh, it's it's about weather conditions at critical uh, times of the year. Um, you know, avoiding frost is, is is a clear one. You know, frost is the biggest threat to vineyards in the UK, and that's all about the location of your vineyard. You know, if you can be frost free, then that's a that's a fantastic opportunity for success, uh, or at least to avoid failure. Um, uh, critical periods are exactly where we are now, towards the end of June. Um, middle to the end of June, start of July, flowering. This is when uh, uh, the fruit set is achieved. When we have, um, uh, you know, dry, warm weather at this time of year, we can set a good crop, and that determines the quantity of grapes that we'll have later on in the year. Nothing to do with quality, really, but the quantity. And this is where we struggle because we have big fluctuations in yield every year. So it's really about the quality of the weather at this time of year. If it's wet, if it's windy, if it's cold, fruit set and the quantity of grapes we we, we achieve is is severely diminished. Then, in terms of ripeness and the quality of that grapes that really is you know August doesn't really matter so much as long as you can deal with inevitable rain and some heat in August um, and can get through it by protecting your crop against disease it's really all about September and early October for, for those ripening months or those ripening weeks and uh, and if you can if we can enjoy some of the weather that we're seeing more and more often now is these luminous dry indian summers of september's and into october this is absolutely the critical critical time for getting the, getting those grapes ripe um and you know the temperatures are getting ripe, uh, warmer and warmer every single year so it's about it's about managing the risks and the threats and then having a bit of luck on your side mm, so often the way in life um those um Champagne grapes, as we call them um, in this context, uh, uh, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Meunier. You talked about immersing yourself in champagne, which sounds like a lovely idea. Um, hmm. uh, and obviously you're, you're certainly immersed in English sparkling wine. Um, how do those grapes uh, differ in character, um, the ones you work with in England versus the ones you've worked with in champagne? Well, first of all, I think, you know, there's been a rush to plant Chardonnay and Pinot Noir in the UK over the last... 15, 20 years, um, and that's thoroughly understandable. Not many people have been planting Pinot Meunier, which is quite strange. It's, it's, it's always been the less glamorous of the grapes when, 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 when you kind of think about it or when you talk about them. But Pinot Meunier is, a, is an amazing grape variety for the UK. Um, you know, it, it, it puts its buds out later than the other two. It ripens its grapes earlier than the other two. So it's got the shorter growing cycle. Um, than Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, and it produces 
fabulously fruity wines which age um, um, which, which mature more quickly than the other two so it's interesting that not enough people not many people have planted Munier it's only it only accounts for about 10% of the vineyard area in the UK whereas Chardonnay is 30% Pinot Noir is about 30% as well um, so more Munier would, would do very very well in the UK I think um, Pinot Noir, people have a fascination with Pinot Noir and, and I completely understand that. For me, it's actually probably the least interesting of all the varieties. I would suggest in the UK, okay, when you, when you, when you come into the territory of trying to make a, a red wine from Pinot Noir, then you're in, in an altogether different landscape of challenge and opportunity uh, and, and probably obsession. Um, but um, for me, Chardonnay really is, is, is the, the grape variety which is most compelling in terms of its potential for absolute greatness or great, great winemaking in the UK. And that's why I'm particularly obsessed with Chardonnay. Um, the Sugru South Downs range of wines, they're all, well, with the exception of the, the, the Rosé uh, Ex Machina, which we just launched a, a couple of months ago, they're all Chardonnay dominant wines. So the cuvées are Chardonnay dominant. Uh, 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 even the, the, the Zero Dosage Zodo is Chardonnay dominant and of course the Blonde Blanc is, is, is a centre uh, part of, of, of that, that range. So for me, you know, I grow uh, uh, grapes on green sand soils as well as chalk soils and for me Chardonnay is, is, is the most compelling of those, those three varieties. And you talked about Zero Dosage there. Um, it's a style, when done well, that I absolutely adore. But it can also, wherever it is, in England or, or in Champagne, frankly, um, it, it can at times be somewhat austere if it's, if it's in the wrong hands, I think. Um, what's the key? Because you make zero dosage very uh, successfully. Uh, what's the key? Uh, the, the key is you can, you, you, the vintage chooses itself. You can't choose which vintage to, to simply uh, put a small amount of dosage in. Well, you can, but it may not be very successful. In fact, it probably won't be very successful. The vintage needs to propose itself, and you only really know that over time. Um, when, you're, when you're disgorging the wines and, uh, and, and you taste the, the, the difference in the, um, in the texture of the, the palate of the wine. Only wines which have got this luxurious, silky, not necessarily low acid uh, 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 profile on the, on the palate, but those ones have got this, this lovely um, uh, creamy mouthfeel and, and naturally broad mouthfeel without the addition of sugar. Those are the wines that, that, that really put their hand up and say, guess what, I, I can cope here without any dosage. And that's really the way that I operate. Um, the first vintage where that has really become apparent was the 2014 vintage. You know, more so than the 2011, and 11 was again a heatwave year, but the wines just didn't taste complete uh, uh, as, as Zodo, as Zero Dosage. But the 2014, with sufficient time in the cellar, was like almost a no-brainer. The wine was so harmonious and had such kind of um, uh, depth of flavour and amplitude across the palate that it simply didn't didn't require any 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 uh, sugar and actually benefited from having its more savoury and saline characteristics uh, uh, amplified without addition of sugar. That it 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 seemed like absolutely the logical thing to do. Other vintages which have presented themselves in a similar way are is the 2017 vintage, which again is not something I would have thought of at the time when you're looking at the say the analysis of those grapes at harvest or the juice when it's coming in 
I don't think I would have believed anybody if somebody had said, oh, I think this 17 would be a great vintage for, for Zero Dosage five years down the line. I like to be led by the wines as they actually mature and reveal themselves over time rather than, than trying to achieve something like that at the set. The ever fascinating and always amiable Dermot Segrew. England is on a roll, as we've heard, when it comes to wine. We all know that. But you can count this country's French winemakers on one hand, I suspect. If that, uh, Corinne Seeley has made wine all over the world, from Bordeaux to Australia. Yet she's chosen to make England her home. Wine director at Hampshire's Exton Park Estate for more than a decade, she's a committed evangelist for English sparkling wine. But it turns out she wasn't always. <laughs> the first time I tasted uh, some English sparkling wines um, was a tasting with the Master of Wines in London back to 2008. And I have to confess, don't repeat it, uh, we nobody is recording at the moment, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> they they were quite surprisingly not good. I mean, quite acidic, uh, on balance. Uh, some people making malolactic fermentation to make the the wine softened and no, completely unbalanced. And I wasn't attracted at all by them. And uh, that is why I um, considered the challenge to make something different. When I visited Exton Park, um, Exton Park is located in the Mion Valley. Um, it, it has a panoramic view. It is very windy there. Uh, it's a big slope. I fell in love with the place. And um, it was a tiny vineyard at the time I visited it. So. When I started to make wines um, and vinify wines from different regions in England, uh, from Hampshire, but also from Dorset and, uh, and Sussex and Kent, uh, I was a consultant at the time. I knew the potential of Exton Park. I knew the potential of the chalky soil from Hampshire. So when uh, the founder of the project, Malcolm Isaac, asked me uh, to to come to build a winery and to literally um, make the project happen, I didn't say no. I mean, it's fascinating that um, to create, to create um, literally uh, a story. And that is what attracted you to stay then, is it? Because you know, you've already said you weren't initially that impressed by what you were tasting at that time. Exactly. And I knew that it was challenging and it will be challenging. At the same time, I knew because of my journey and because I was, you know, I've been in, in that world of the wine, I knew the potential of the source. I knew that. And, um, and the first time I had the chance to make a Chardonnay from Exton Park, um, before the winery even was built, it, it, it was really special. I really, uh, you know, you know that, you know, it's like when you cook something and you know you succeed to, to do something special. Uh, every, every person in, in the world knows that, you, you know, when you do something special. And uh, that is why I'm still here, because obviously uh, it's just the start of something. Uh, we haven't yet achieved 
everything, I believe. And uh, it's just um, the beginning of a fantastic story. It is. I passionately believe that too. And I was talking on this programme a month ago to Dermot Sugru, who uh, you will know very well. And we were talking about how incredibly exciting it is to be um, at the beginning of the story of English sparkling wine. Presumably, you really feel that as well. Definitely. Even if England uh, is obviously an uh, old country, part of uh, the old world, the wine industry in England is just blossoming. We certainly uh, consider that we are entering, for me, the third phase of the English wine industry. The first phase was certainly when people planted uh, the first vineyard um, in England 40, 50 years ago now. And then, obviously, uh, they invest in, in, uh, in the wineries, equipment. Um, it takes time. Um, and then now, now, I think people certainly are recognizing English sparkling as English. And no more, I hope, a copy of a pale champagne. Well, I was just going to come to that because... Uh, people do still compare it, uh, these days very favourably, with champagne. Uh, but do you think it's time to stop comparing it to champagne and treat it as something special in its own right? Because I am the French winemaker making wine in England, I think I have the right to say that, yes, we have to stop it. Uh, that ridiculous comparison, easy comparison. Obviously, champagne could easily always be the obvious comparison to English sparkling wines because of the similarities of the geology of the Tutewa. However, uh, uh, there are so many different parameters like sunshine and rainfall, you know, even the density of, uh, of the plantations. Uh, in Champagne, um, basically, you have 8,000 vines per hectare. In England, for some of the, the vineyards, it's, uh, it's less than 4,000 vines per hectare. So, yes, let's stop making that, um, even if it, is, it has been attractive at the beginning to compare the two categories, I really believe that it, it, has, to be the, it has to be now the moment that people recognize that, yes, English sparkling wines have got their own identity. I really believe that Exton Park has won its own personality of wines and, uh, and definitely not a champagne at all. The level of acidity, for example, is so much higher in, in English sparkling that because of that, it is, it is a quality, it becomes a quality because the wines can age better. And uh, obviously, the, 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 that acidity lifts the, the, the flavors. And uh, it's, it's, it's certainly a new category of wines. Well, there you go. Corin Seeley, wine director at Exton Park on the singular beauty of English sparkling wine. Jessica Julmy had her dream job, commercial director of Krug, the exclusive champagne house that dares to be different. But then along came a project that was in itself too good to turn down. Parent company LVMH had bought a rather run-down Grand Cru Classe estate in the heart of the Côte de Provence, overlooking the Med, Chateau Galoupe. And the bosses wanted her to take it on. And more importantly, to dare to be different again. 
I could have retired at Krug. I could have spent decades there and retired happily. Um, I love the story. I love the quality. I love the champagnes, of course. Um, I knew it was a time for to change, um, and 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 this this opportunity was a bit of a curveball. I was looking at other opportunities within the group, and when they presented me with this one, um, I didn't do any due diligence, but I knew um, that this was a once in a lifetime. When do you ever get the chance to 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 take over uh, a, a new brand uh, in the LVMH uh, portfolio? Uh, when I say I don't didn't do my due diligence. I, I guess I hadn't measured the extent to which, as you mentioned at the beginning, the extent to which we'd be starting from scratch. Um, but if I, if I, even if I had known that, I, I could have never said uh, said no, even if knowing the paramount nature of this exercise. So paint us a bit of a picture of um, what you started with at Chateau Galoupe. Um, I rather cruelly described it as um, uh, sort of rather run down um, in the introduction. But um, it is, you know, uh, when I went there back at the end of March, um, if you've been anywhere that's sort of owned by LVMH, you, you expect a certain level of kind of pristine kind of poshness, I suppose. And um, it is not um, yet uh, that, is it? <laughs> No, 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 not at all. Um, I prefer to say it, 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 it is this Sleeping Beauty that was was lacking uh, a bit of love. Um, and when I say lacking a bit of love, what, what we have here is really a unique ecosystem, which, it, which took me a few weeks, a few months to really discover the extent to which it was quite a unique ecosystem. But when I say lacking in love is that with previous owners having felt there was more to gain out of this place with, with, with events and, and large-scale weddings, the 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 seventy the, the seventy or so hectares of vineyard which you mentioned at the beginning had been really deprioritized uh, besides in conventional agriculture and the seventy seven hectares of protected woodland uh, were not prioritized at all and and had been recently impacted yet again by forest fires so it was a bit uh, let's say tired um, and that's what we discovered and in a situation where the the place the location had been invested from a event perspective, but not a winery or a vineyard or a, a forest perspective. Mm. And it does have this proud history because it's a, a grand cru class A uh, property. There are always arguments in Provence about how much that means, and we won't we won't dwell on those because, frankly, it's not very interesting, really. But but it's um, but it but it is a, a, a property with a, a, a long and at one stage quite proud history, isn't it? Indeed, and and you know, I have to you you mentioned my my past at at Krug, and for me that was an interesting starting point because I I was able to live at Krug the extent to which rediscovering your roots and the importance of fully understanding your founder, your founder's vision allows you to just be a mere executor, if you will. You just have to follow your founder's vision. And here I thought, okay, maybe I'll find inspiration for that. Maybe we have a founding moment, a, a sort of a family history or, or whatever the case may be. So again, started looking in, in the archives and it was a bit of a bumpy ride because um, we have quite a bit of history, but we had to go beyond the the French Revolution. There have been, unfortunately, countless forest fires. So there are a lot of missing uh, moments in 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 the winery's history. Um, but we were indeed able to go as far back as uh, the first map of France. So the 18th century, in the mid 1700s, you find Galopé, 
uh, so a derivative, but G-A-L-O-P-E, appearing on that very first map of France. So you, and that for me was that first tipping point when I realized, okay, we, we, we might not be the sexiest and, and most pristine place today. We may have changed hands 15 times. I might not actually know the foundation date, which for, for, for many a month for me, it was a grand uh, disappointment uh, to be part of LVMH when I didn't even know my foundation date. But I knew that as far back as the mid 1700s, this place, that this land beneath my feet existed. And that allowed me to take a step back and think, okay, what is this place? And that's when I realized, hold on, I've been looking at this purely as a winery exercise when here you have, yes, these 69 hectares of vineyard of Cru Classé de Provence, but also these 77 hectares of protected woodland. So indeed, this, this history rich, uh, challenged, many ups and downs. Um, so not this pristine uh, history uh, uh, story to share, um, but it has been uh, existing for quite a while. Mm, and it's in a very beautiful place with the views of uh, the island of Porquerolles in the distance and the Med, and it's it's, it's very, very um, lovely. So it's going to be wonderful, I think. Of course, in the meantime, I think it was in the meantime anyway, um, so LVMH uh, bought this property, off you went, um, and then uh, sort of separately, I think, um, LVMH uh, became the majority shareholder in the mighty Chateau d'Esclin. Um, Sasha Lachine was a, a previous guest on The Drinking Hour. Absolutely fascinating chat. I loved that edition. A real pioneer. And that kind of happened sort of as well, didn't it? Exactly. So that, so uh, Chateau Galoupet was acquired in the summer. So uh, between May and July. And then uh, Chateau d'Esclin came a few months later in the fall of the same year. And um, you're not part of that then, that's a sort of separate thing. No, we were part of the discussions at the, I was part of the discussions at the beginning and, and when you have the, 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 the chance of integrating uh, an establishment like Chateau d'Esclon and, and the, the experience, the knowledge, the foresight of, of a gentleman like Sacha Lichin, you, 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 you manage that differently. And so that has indeed been managed, been differently integrated within the Moet Hennessy LVMH network uh, separately as it deserves given the size and, and the success over the last decade. Have you always been a fan of Provence Rosé? <laughs> can I be Swiss and very neutral in answering that question? Yeah, of course you can, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was never my, 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 my tipple of choice, let's put it that way. <laughs> oh, okay, but you're a convert now. And, exactly. Uh, and I, I've, I've actually always been a, an enormous fan. I th they're wonderful wines. And of course, there's been this quality revolution as well, um, which uh, in large part, I mean, led by many people, but uh, Sasha Lachine is absolutely mm -hmm. certainly one of them. So tell us a bit more about the estate. We've talked about the hectoridge, uh, 70, and then that uh, that woodland, which um, is, is very much part of your thinking. Um, where do you start with something like this? A few months of loneliness. Uh, and thinking that exact question, where do I start? Um, and then really, um, without exaggeration, that, that, that tipping point of realizing, okay, we have this land beneath our feet. Let's take a look at that. Maybe that is our, 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 the, the, the uniqueness of our foundation. It's the land, it's the earth. And, and at the risk of, of sounding a bit corny, that soon became the inspiration, hand in hand with, with a report I was reading uh, from the biodiversity that did exist at the time within the forest and, 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 and realizing that we had potentially a rather rare species of tortoise. And I thought, 
oh my gosh, we have this opportunity. And, and for me, this kind of clicked in this, 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 this conviction that I have that when you are part of LVMH, it's a responsibility, a, a twofold responsibility, if you will, investing in the savoir-faire, not coming in as, 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 as knights on, on our white horse um, to save the region, because as you mentioned, the region has done so much in, in the last years, in the last decade to improve the quality, improve the savoir-faire and so on. But it is a responsibility of a group like LVMH to continue investing in the savoir-faire. And today, more than ever, more than ever, Moet Hennessy as, as, as part of kind of the, the wines and spirits arm, the responsibility to invest in this sustainable viticulture, the sustainable vitification practices. So you combine that responsibility that I, I hold very, very dear to what I considered an opportunity in the sense that we were ultimately starting from scratch. I admire so greatly the likes of Huina, who have done so much in terms of questioning the status quo where they can. At the same time, when you are the most, uh, the, the oldest champagne house that exists, you have a, a, a responsibility and a, and a commitment to your tradition, to your history. We don't have at Chateau Galoupet that, that, same, that, that same history, that same tradition, these long established brand codes. And so I felt that we had this opportunity to really start things from scratch besides the obligation. We talked about a, a slightly tired vineyard, if you will. One of the discoveries I had was that from the vineyard as it stood, we would have to uproot and replant 60% of the vineyard over the de next decade. And so again, this, this opportunity, finding the silver lining of, of what is unfortunate in terms of having to uproot and replant, but thinking, okay, what opportunity does that give us? Jessica Julmi on the rebirth of Chateau Galoupe in Provence. Teresa Hoitzenroder took on an altogether more established winner at Petaluma, the Australian wine brand, last year as the new chief winemaker after a 25-year career at another Aussie institution, Yalumba. The new role encompasses not just the Adelaide Hills, her base, but also Kunawara and the Clare Valley. And she told me what made her take on the new challenge. Going back to sort of my history with Yalumba, I guess that sort of recognition of, of working with such a great you know, well-known, well-loved brand with such a history. And I see a lot of sort of parallels between that and some of the brands that I was working with at Ilumba. So, yeah, very much that and sort of that whole sort of pioneering. Brian Crozer was such a pioneer and, and the sort of the winemaking ethos that he brought and that sort of um, philosophy of sort of meticulous winemaking really sort of resonated with me. So I think it's a really, you know, that, that was part of the attraction and getting to work with, you know, very classic varieties from classic regions. Um, yeah, very much a, a draw card. You mentioned Brian Crozer there and uh, the yeah. uh, traditional method sparkling wine, which I've uh, been fortunate to taste in the past, uh, is named in his uh, honour. Tell us a bit about him and uh, uh, the kind of uh, history of, of Petaluma. Well, I guess he started He started the brand in 1976 and, you know, he, he really is very widely recognised both in Australia and internet as a real visionary of the industry and a real innovator and has had a huge influence on Australian winemaking. And I guess when he sort of founded Petaluma, it was sort of founded on the philosophy of what I talked about before with that sort of that synergy of the right variety in the right region, which seems quite sort of, you know, obvious when you talk about it now. But 
back then it was sort of, you know, mid-70s, sort of founding sort of era of Australian, particularly table wine making. And that sort of terroir-driven approach um, wasn't, you know, we were only just sort of starting to focus on that. It's, it, you know, it's very much part of the industry today with individual sight and and recognition of that. But but he was really sort of a driving factor in sort of getting that to the forefront of Australian winemaking. So, you know, that still very much forms the basis of Petaluma today with that sort of focus on classic varieties in classic regions. So, yeah. Mm, well, when you and I met, which is about a month ago in London, when you were uh, allowed out of Australia again for the first time yeah. uh, in, a, in a while post-pandemic, uh, um, one of the things you said at, at lunch, actually, um, which really um, made me think, really surprised me, was uh, what you just mentioned there about the right grape mm. in the right place. And I'd never really thought in the context of Australian wine that that hadn't been a consideration in the past. Well, I guess it sort of was and it wasn't because prior to the 60s, there are obviously, you know, the early sort of days of, of table wine production in Australia. But a lot of the focus prior to that had been in fortified and probably more red wine production. Um, but then we were really just exploring some of the newer regions in Australia back then. And, and Brian, in fact, was the first person to plant Chardonnay in the Adelaide Hills. And when you think about, you know, that was in the sort of late 70s. Back then, you know, Chardonnay is everywhere now, but back then Chardonnay in Australia was, you know, almost an alternative variety. So, you know, when you think about that, how he's come about to the fact that he's going to grow Chardonnay in Australia, which wasn't a big variety back then, and how that sort of exploded now into diversity of, of Chardonnay across Australia, but, you know, and, and the fact that now Australia... Um, in the Adelaide Hills is such a renowned variety. I mean, it's pretty pioneering, but we just sort of take it for granted now as particularly younger winemakers in the industry. So, yeah, it, that's what I'm saying. It seems very obvious now, but it actually probably wasn't back then. Um, mm. And the Australian industry has come a long way in, you know, a relatively short space of time when you sort of compare it in the context of sort of internationally. The wines at uh, Petaluma have this uh, very fine pedigree, as uh, you mentioned there. As a new broom, how do you go about changing things, making your mark as a winemaker, but also conscious that you don't want to kind of... Um, mm. sort of kill the golden goose as it were yeah and that's always a fine line I think particularly when you're taking on a brand like Petaluma where it is very well known um, people are very familiar with the style but I think yeah and, you know and as winemakers we all want to put our mark on 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 a wine that that's who we are as winemakers that's why we do it we want to try new things but yeah I think it's just very much our global wine director is as has um, come up coined the phrase it's evolution, not revolution. And I really, really like that because it's a really good way of sort of expressing that, respecting what's been before, but then kind of taking taking it, you know, into keeping it modern, keeping it fresh, trying new things, but doing it gradually in a way that's, that's not going to, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, but take the wines in a good direction and keep them evolving. You must be under quite a bit of pressure. I mean, not literally from your bosses. I, I don't mean that. I mean that that kind of <laughs> pressure that you must feel in terms of sort of making that impact. People waiting for you, for you to kind of 
um, have an impact on the wines. It, it must be it, it must be a pressure that's that's uh, with a big brand like Petaluma with these very celebrated wines. It must be quite a significant pressure. I'd have thought that you feel. Yes and no. I mean, it it I it's funny. I did sort of feel similar at Yolamba at times with with some of you know. It's like you're sort of taking the baby and being gentle with it and just you know taking care. But you don't try and tend to focus on that too much. It's just about you just want to make the wines better and and keep evolving them and going from there so yeah I don't I, I try not to think about that too much but just get in and, and get to know the vineyards and get to know the wines and and really kind of just keep chipping away I guess yeah well if you're trying not to think about it very much then I'm probably not helping very much then uh, but um, <laughs> I, know, I think it probably comes more from the outside than you know yeah I, I'm sure just... it does and that's me uh, not for the first time not being especially helpful uh, with the lovely and very patient, uh, Teresa Hoitzenroda at Petaluma. It's on to cocktails next, and the master of mixology, Shannon Bay, the first American to be head bartender at the Savoy's legendary American bar. She's now beverage director at London's Outernet, a new project, uh, but she began her career in the kitchen, as she explained to me. In a, a place as disciplined as French Culinary Institute, you learn how to work very, very cleanly and very organized. And um, I, that all obviously translates into a bar environment in a very important way. Uh, you know, you, as I think about things like mise en place, as I do in the kitchen when I'm behind the bar, I think about everything having a home and a place, but also just general kind of order of operations and, and methodology in general. Um, and then with regards specifically to pastry, you know, you're thinking about it, precision and being able to replicate things to a, a very specific degree and uh, working specifically with sugars and fats. You know, and there are any number of parallels that, that come into play. Yeah, that's really interesting because I'm a, a really keen amateur cook and I'm, I'm definitely uh, at the amateur end of the spectrum. But, um, but I'm a, a complete shambles in the kitchen. I can never find anything. <laughs> I make a dreadful mess. And, and actually, if you're running a really busy bar, presumably an element of, of, of kind of kitchen style discipline is really important. Absolutely true. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. How did you then go? Uh, you mentioned you were working on the side, if you like, as a, a cocktail waitress. Um, how did you kind of fall for the world of mixology? It honestly was complete happenstance. So I had decided to go to culinary school and had moved it to the East Village just because that's where I found an apartment that I that I liked and I liked the general kind of vibe and culture and, and energy of that neighborhood in New York City. And once I began culinary school, I, I, needed, I needed a job on the side. And Death & Co. just happened to be right around the corner. I saw an ad that they were looking for a hostess. And I just marched in and <laughs> threw down my resume and tried to charm the manager into hiring me. And, and somehow it worked. And from there, I started learning about cocktails and cocktail culture and history and whilst doing that alongside pastry school, it clicked in, in my brain that these two are the same thing. And if I like pastry and I like cooking and I, and I like being in a kitchen, then I also would very much like being behind a bar. And so I was d decided to kind of take everything that I was learning from a culinary school perspective and applying it 
to the way I was thinking about drinks and learning about drinks and, and bar culture in general because of that same sort of draw to the the energy and the nightlife and and uh, working with with people and, and you know doing something for a guest while while being a, a chef is wonderful and, and great fun it's it's more often than not that you're behind the scenes and being able to interact one-on-one with guests to me was a big draw of leaning towards the bar culture rather than the culinary culture. We should um, perhaps introduce Death & Co to those listening who've not been there, who are not familiar with it. So tell us a bit about that bar. Absolutely. Uh, Death & Co is a cocktail bar in the East Village in New York City. It opened on New Year's Eve, uh, transitioning from 2006 into 2007. Right around that time was when you know, you have milk and honey kind of coming into the spotlight, places like Pegu Club uh, and Death & Co. very much fell into that category of the seminal New York cocktail revival scene. Um, and it really created a name for itself in that way and created, well, out of that bar came what we now think of as, as a great number of, of modern classics and some of the, the world's best bartenders worked there and opened and cultivated that culture in that bar. And I am very privileged to have ever had the opportunity to be a part of that team. They have a, uh, an amazing je ne sais quoi to them, uh, the, the kind of bar you're talking about here. Uh, in in your true, mind, yes. if someone, someone said to you what makes that, you talked about seminal there, what makes that kind of seminal uh, New York um, cocktail environment. What, what do you think it is? What What is that je ne sais quoi, uh, if that's not a, um, a contradiction asking that kind of question? What, what makes <laughs> it so special? It's, well, it is a je ne sais quoi. It's just that. It's, um, it, it's that, little, that little something. They're, the Death & Co. opened at a, just a specific time and place in the New York bar scene that, it, I mean, it just hit everything really correctly and honestly got very lucky in a number of ways with the the timing and the people they were able to attract. Um, but I think really what it comes down to is obviously prioritizing not just the quality of the cocktails, the entire guest experience, you know, the, it all begins not just, it, it begins the moment you walk up to the door, not just when you get your cocktail. And it's not just about that. It's about everything. So something about Death & Co. people always remark on is how how dark it is in there it's all very candle lit you come through black curtains and suddenly you're in a different time and place it, it really is transformative and i think that is something that makes it so special you feel like right away you're completely you've been relocated both physically and chronologically <laughs> and how important is that physical environment to the enjoyment of a drink, because obviously uh, the mixology is, is is what matters most, you you would hope. But in terms of how it feels and how it's decorated, um, how significant do you think that is to our enjoyment of a cocktail? I think it's absolutely paramount. Um, I, it, it, there are certain details, the tension to everything that's happening in the room at any given time, at any bar, and it all contributes to the, the experience at large. So, I mean, you could have a delicious cocktail, but if you're in a room that's too bright or too hot in an uncomfortable chair and the bartender is not very nice and, you know, it's not, it's too loud, the, the experience is not going to be great. You might walk away saying, like, well, the drink was okay, but I don't know that I'd really want to go back and hang out there again. If you walk in and you instantly kind of feel 
like everything is clicking and everything is right. And often you don't even notice it's happening. You just know that you feel great and you're having a great time. There's a word that I like to use when it comes to cocktail service and, and kind of bar culture and it's organoleptic, which really, it just essentially means multi-sensory. Uh, you're incorporating all of your senses all at once. So it's not just about this cocktail. It's about everything that's happening all around you at any given moment, having to come together in the perfect harmony. Mm, I think you've just defined the je ne sais quoi. <laughs> there uh, you go. Actually, <laughs> probably, yeah. Organoleptic, yeah. Organoleptic. So, so, uh, so London came calling with the American bar at the Savoy. Um, did you, you're from New Mexico, as you mentioned. You worked in New York. Did you have a desire to come to London? I've always loved London. I traveled and visited here before moving here. And when the opportunity presented itself, I absolutely knew that it was not something that I could say no to. I was delighted to be able to get the chance to, to come out here. It has this extraordinary history. It's uh, an incredibly famous place. It's uh, one of the most famous addresses for a, for a cocktail. Out of a, about a dozen head bartenders over its uh, long history, you were the second woman. The other woman was about 100 years before. And right. she um, was really very famous in her own right, wasn't she? Certainly, yes. Um, not only for being the first woman, but also for creating so many amazing now classic cocktails and certainly for being a woman in that era behind the bar, uh, I think was probably something pretty special. And why was she so famous? Tell us a bit about her. Uh, I mean, from, from what I've read and from everything I've heard about her, she was really quite a character. She had a lot of personality, a lot of moxie. Um, she created, as I mentioned, a number of now classic cocktails, namely the one that most people are aware of is the Hanky Panky, uh, which is one of my favorites and, and something that was requested every single day at, at the American Bar, absolutely, with good reason. Uh, just for those who aren't familiar, because not everyone listening will be a, a cocktail aficionado, uh, just tell us about the Hanky Panky. I think it was created for uh, Charles Hawtrey, wasn't it? It, it certainly was, yes. So Charles Holtry was a, a British director, actor, producer, manager, uh, and he was a regular of Ada Coleman's and affectionately referred to her as, as Coley, her nickname. Um, and as the story goes, from what I've heard, he sat at her bar and said, Coley, I'm tired. Just give me something with a little bit of punch in it. And she cobbled together what is now known as the hanky-panky because he gave it a, a, a taste and said, by Jove, that is the real hanky-panky, and it stuck. Uh, so the drink itself is a really spirit-driven gin cocktail, kind of in the, in the vein of a martini or a martinez. Uh, so it has gin, sweet vermouth, and fernet which is kind of like a very intensely herbaceous and bitter liqueur. Mm, so it's kind of like a martini plus in a way. Exactly. Sure, yeah. A plussed up martini. Well, a plussed up martini will do for me. That's Shannon Bay, which brings us neatly to talking gin with the absolute authority on the subject, Livier Ward of Gin Foundry, a member of the IWSC's Spirit Judging Committee, editor of uh, Spirits Beacon and the resident gin expert on Channel 4's Sunday Brunch. It's quite a portfolio. I asked him how the current gin boom began. People associate it with this really new thing, but it actually a lot of the big brands that changed the, um, 
the momentum or started the momentum and changed things uh, were born in 2001, 2003. So, you, you know, you're looking at Tanqueray 10, you're looking at Hendrix, you're looking at Beefy to 24. These, the sort of, the, these big brands that had their mainstay flagship for a while and, and they were premiumizing with these different sort of premium editions, these premium expressions. And, um, and that, that started, that started to, to shift things, but it took a decade of them pumping in a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of very clever marketing um, to even make an impact. And um, so it wasn't, it wasn't an overnight thing and you can really see the, see the start of it. But as you, you, and even all the way up to 2012, you go to most pubs and bars, there's still only four or five on the back bar. I was pondering this as I was doing my uh, research, because I know you, you've written about this in, in your book, um, uh, the story of, of kind of uh, how this uh, gin boom uh, renaissance is a, a nicer word, actually, uh, because, of course, gin has been around for so long, um, how it began. W- was it that then? Was it these sort of what we consider um, sort of uh, m- quite big brands, but innovative brands rather than artisanal producers is that is that how it kicked off i I, yeah and i I think it's a combination right so i I think it's it you you have you have to acknowledge the circumstance that um that that went into it so um a renewed interest in regionality and locality within the food and drinks scene overall um that that was definitely a factor a trend playing out um locavores as it was called at the time um but the um you've then also got this re- renewal of craft cocktails, and I think that, def- that definitely made a, a bit of an impact. And I'm sure, sure we'll talk about it more over uh, over the next bit. But the um, I remember Sipsmith at the time, and they were in this garage in in, in uh, Hammersmith, and it was all it was it was a really small dingy. It was quite small. It was a garage. I remember this really dingy couch at the back as well, and it was just it, it was really early days of craft distilling in the UK, but for them in particular, and. And the guys were very, very open and saying, look, there really wouldn't be a Sipsmith without Hendrix. There wouldn't be a Hendrix without Tanqueray. There wouldn't be a Tanqueray like, you know, without Bombay. You kind of build on, you build on what's been before you and, and those who have been before you. And, and those big brands changed a lot. And, and the reason they changed a lot wasn't just in terms of building awareness and uh, engaging with a lot of this new generation of bartenders who were coming through at the time. It, it was also because they were ready to show that actually um you could have much more contemporary flavor profiles so if you just think about tanqueray 10 for a second it's super citrusy and that was quite a departure quite a radical departure on the gins that you know had been known for you know a century before that this idea of fresh fruit in in you know in, in the distillation that was that was weird um and same thing again with hendrix and their cucumber and rose and, and the same thing with you know martin miller's um and some of these quite contemporary flavor profiles that were making gin accessible to a new consumer. And that all started with the big brands. So saying that it was just the craft producers that created this boom is completely false because there was a lot of circumstantial uh, circumstantial factors going into it. And, and that groundwork that had been done up to that point was fantastic. But there is no doubt that as soon as craft distilling hits as a concept, especially in the UK, it is not one plus one and then this thing happened. It is a multiplier effect. It's 10 times 10 and it just exploded as a result of it. But yeah, so it's depends on which era you look at. But that first 15 years is very much a story of the big brands and uh, making it cool again, I suppose. Mm, that's really interesting. And I remember um, some years ago when I um, discovered 
that Bombay Sapphire was not a hundred years old. You know, it was created, of course, very cleverly in that beautiful blue bottle. Yeah. Um, there's a picture of Queen Victoria on there, I think, as I as mm -hmm. I recall. Um, another one is Hendrix. Again, I love that gin, but I had assumed that had been around for a hundred years or something. And and then you discover that it was a a very smart uh, kind of new brand, effectively. You know. A, 20 odd years ago, mm -hmm. um, they were really, really clever with the creation of these kind of heritage looking brands, weren't they? Yeah. And, and it's, you know, and, and it, yes, it, for both of them, super clever in terms of how they um, they brought it to life, but for, almost for different reasons, you know, so like Bombay, when you think it's in the 80s, right? So what they were doing was uh, showing that gin could be premium. And that was that in itself is revolutionary. And that sounds so basic now, but mm. at the time they were like, you know what? You would pay a pre for a premium gin. That's crazy talk given it was, you know, Gordon's and Bombay, right? Uh, sorry, Gordon's and um, Beefeater. And so they, they really showed that the category could be premiumized. And that set a train of events within the big, you know, multinationals to go, well, actually, there's an opportunity there. Can you just see how they're doing it? And that if we were to go not premiumize Gordon's, but maybe create a different expression or premiumize Tanqueray, and, uh, you know, let's create something different, i.e. Tanqueray 10 or Beefy to 24. And there were multiple attempts before Beefy to 24, I should point out, you know, there was uh the good old crown jewel for a while uh beefy to crown jewels was for a while but it, it just didn't work it didn't connect so so you know bombay set the showed by example actually yes you can create this brand that people can identify with and are familiar with this heritage looking thing and also be premium at the same time so or, or it's almost like familiar same same but different and, and hendrix took a quite a different like different approach to it because, you know, they, they were created in 1999, uh, first released on the US market, not the UK in 2001. UK was in 2003. Um, but if you actually just think about this concept of um, dual distillation, right? So Hendrix is made in, uh, you know, in, in, in two different pot stills, in two different stills, one's vapor infusion, one's pot. And they've got these two distillates, uh, cucumber and rose. So it's dual distillation that is blended together with these sort of, uh, extracts that are added on top to make it that exact same concept had already been done in martin miller's 1998 right so a year before on the market dual distillation with a cucumber extract except they didn't really speak about it in martin miller's what they did was going okay well we're in a vodka era the 90s end of the end of the 90s vodka era let's make something that's familiar to vodka drinkers but then might bring them into gin. So a very citrus forward gin that would appeal to those who like a lighter set. And Hendrix, and it, and it worked for a while, but it hasn't really transcended. And the reason that Hendrix, with almost a very, very similar concept at a very similar time, they didn't go, let's, how do we appeal to vodka drinkers in a tall bottle or with that kind of talk about purity of water? Let's give them something completely different, or at least that's perceived in a completely different way. That's actually not that different at all. That was groundbreaking as well. Like, I, and I, I certainly remember at the time, and and Leslie, who's their master distiller, talks about it a lot. There was a lot of people within William Grant and within the distilling team that, that absolutely hated that bottle. Uh, you know, that it's apothecary brand, small bottle. They were like, that's never going to work. People are never going to go on it. And, and the end decision was very much like, look, people are bored of these sort of tall, long bottles and chat about purity of water and triple distillation and stuff like that. Um, let's let's revolutionize and give them something completely different to connect to that was a really big gamble at the time and uh, and a very mixed um mixed team opinion about it and um and it was the right gamble uh, as you can see 
not just in terms of the success of that brand, but the direct comparison that you can have between something like Martin Miller's and Hendrix, which are not that dissimilar as concepts then, obviously over 20 years, they've separated a little bit and, and found their niches in their different zones. So that, mm. that kind of t- yeah, so it, it wasn't just clever on from a, yeah, it's clever on a branding level, but also clever on sort of how they were interpreting the market as a whole and, and, and the way that they were, they were going to be perceived in both the short and the long run. That was Olivier Ward of Channel 4's Sunday Brunch and the rest talking all things gin. Finally, to one of my favourite places, Italy. Sarah Knowles is a master of wine and she's also the Italian buyer for the Wine Society. A big question this, but I asked her to try to sum up what makes Italy's wines so special. The sheer variety of um, indigenous grape varieties that are out there uh, is pretty amazing. And the diversity of the landscapes across Italy um, is sort of really lends itself to um, highlighting some of those different grapes and enabling winemakers to really make the most out of a particular terroir. Um, I think the the fact that Italy is, is you know, over 700 miles long, but only a couple of hundred miles wide, um, with this huge spine of mountains running down the middle and the Alps to the, the north and volcanoes dotted throughout, and especially in the south, um, with all of that coastline, um, it really does create a sort of incredible myriad of, of sites um, that that any winemaker can really get excited about. And of course, we see it in other um, agricultural products too across Italy. So there's this huge care and attention paid to, to the importance of where a tomato might be grown or where aubergines best grown or chilies or, um, you know, various kind of olive trees and varieties have, have equal importance. And so I think that um, perhaps mindset of really valuing what very... Um, unique landscapes can bring to any agricultural product and grapes that happen to show their their, their place so clearly when made into wine. Um, it's a really exciting and special thing. Mm, absolutely. Good answer. How did you first get into Italian wines yourself? So I guess... Um, how I first got into wine more generally was through blind tasting um, at a university club. Um, and I, I didn't know a lot about wine beforehand, so it was a real discovery for me. Um, but I was drinking Italian wine at that point. So it was um, in the early 2000s and Suave was hugely popular. Pinot Grigio was about to come into its um, sort of zenith and Prosecco was just starting to um, sort of come onto the radar for, for an early 20s consumer as I was at that point. Um, so Italy was was really starting to um, register for me, sitting on my table and being very accessible and um, providing wines that had a level of quality that I was very happy with at a price point that I could afford. Um, and I think that was really important. And then as I progressed into the wine trade um, and started doing education and WSETs and, and so forth, um, I guess I fell into that same trap as many people who start to learn a little bit about Italy and realise just how complex and how large um, amount of information there is to learn. And so it suddenly became this sort of a little bit of a scary um, topic for me, as I think it is for many people as they start to learn about um, various wine regions. Um, and Italy was that sort of site tricky 
puzzle to crack. But as I got into um, buying wine for the wine trade, um, I was working initially buying um, wines and and working with different wineries, supplying restaurants in London um, in the the main. Um, And of course, hugely popular on-trade styles of wine were Italian. So things like Montepulciano, Chianti, um, Prosecco again, Pinot Grigio, Suave, you know, inexpensive Sicilian wines or um, perfect food, um, central Italian reds um, were really bread and butter for for selling into restaurants. And so I very quickly started learning as much as I possibly could about the region and the country so that I would I would be able to find some really good gems and and place them into good restaurants. The more that you um, learn about Italy, the more you realise you don't know. I think it's an extraordinary country. That 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 uh, that list of indigenous grape varieties uh, that I mentioned in the introduction and and you referenced just now. It's it's mind boggling, isn't it? It's um, amazing. I I feel now that I I have been buying Italy professionally for a number of years. I I studied extensively in in wine, and yet almost every time I travel to Italy, I discover a new grape variety that I have have to go back to my phone and Google. Um, in the car very quickly and try and work out um, whether it was a you know whether it was a great variety name or whether it was a specific region that I hadn't heard of perhaps or a town or a you know what am I looking at and that's a, a crazy thing um, to still be in a position where that happens um, more often than I would like to admit um, however it also is really encouraging in that this is an exciting country where um, even those people, um, you know, immersed in the wine trade and in the wine world can still find genuine discoveries. And I think that that is often something that we're really, um, or at least that's something that really excites me, that kind of hunt for a new discovery and a new thing. And of course, these wines and these grapes and perhaps these um, little towns and sub-regions that I'm discovering are not new to, to others. They're very well known within their, within their area and they're hailed and, and um, exalted and often made extremely well. Um, and that makes it even more fun that as, an, as a sort of outsider to that, I can um, bring it to members and to, to the UK and perhaps um, highlight it uh, in a way that um, I think is quite exciting. Yeah, and you uh, certainly do that. Um, it's fair to say there was definitely a time, and um, I, I'm probably a, a bit older than you, but um, but there was a time, certainly when I was first getting into wine, um, where Italy was very much um, in the shadow of its neighbour France in terms of top-end wines. I remember speaking to some sort of tweedy, posh gentleman, um, sort of this is probably the 1990s, uh, who was asking me what sort of wines I was into. And I said Italian wines. And he sort of he sort of tilted his head and said, oh, well, yeah, mm, there's some, some interesting stuff there, I suppose, or <laughs> something like that. It was all a bit dismissive. And that is definitely changed but it was um, very much um, a factor until relatively recently wasn't it yeah no i think um i think probably france is, has just done a tremendous job over the years in promoting the regional wines and the classic wines that we know and love today and of course they have huge production and huge quality um to to back that up um so i think it's sort of france has done something um 
really impressive over the years in sort of getting that out there. And historically, of course, had very close merchant links with the UK. Um, and so is perhaps something, um, all the wines of those regions are perhaps something that we're more more used to here. Um, Italy is sort of catching up, I think it would be fair to say. And um, and different regions are doing it in different ways. And, and there are some regions that are really brilliantly working together at the moment to promote um, you know, a particular wine or a particular regional style. Um, and that will, I think, continue to enable sort of Italian wines to, to be better understood um, by an international market. Um, but of course, the you, we come back to that sheer number of diversity of um, different grape varieties and, and styles made. Um, it is easier to, to put forward two dozen um, styles of wine or big regions of wine that perhaps um, they have across France and the top grape varieties that are, are really made in very high sort of volumes. Um, whereas when you're looking at Italy, it's such a myriad of differences and, and pockets of things being made that um, it is more complicated to present. Uh, so there isn't as much generalization that can be made. And and I think that will always um, sort of mean that it is a little bit um, in the shadow of, of France. But wonderfully, of course, it isn't in the shadow of France at all, I think, in terms of the quality that it offers mm. um, at any price point. So I think uh, the uh, the sort of um, entry level, it really goes toe to toe for value. And there are some Italian wines that offer great value under £10 and can come across anything um, from France or Spain or from from America, South America. I think they can really compete. And then at the very top end, um, I know France sort of has a monopoly on these um, incredibly um, highly prized and priced wines. But there has fantastic quality and complexity in some of the traditional regions of Italy. And those wines are getting more and more attention. And rightly so. Sarah Knowles, MW of the Wine Society, wrapping up this special highlights edition from Series 6 of The Drinking Hour. Hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to all of my guests uh, this series and also to you for listening as well. Series 7 starts next week, I'm delighted to say. Do please uh, join us then. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you can follow me if you'd like to, uh, Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, thanks for joining us and goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.